Hey, it's Jared Dubin here. This is the audio from Tuesday's chat on the Halftime app with Fred Katz from The Athletic. Fred is the Knicks beat writer there. He spent the last few years covering the Wizards as well. So we talked about both of those teams. Fred's time having about 472 jobs over the last four or five years or so. And our time in New York together as well. I uh, hope you enjoy the chat. Be back on Thursday 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern with Brad Rowland from Peachtree Hoops talking everything Atlanta Hawks. Enjoy. with uh is it true that you moved back to new york just to be closer to me that's completely true you know what's great about that i i got rentable for it because i didn't realize it was all audio so now i'm looking all good and nobody can even see describe to the people what you're wearing i think everybody needs to know i'm just wearing oh that's a big big deal for me that's pretty abnormal for people like us you know people that uh that do this for a living i mean putting on pants is a big move when i have pants all right all right so it's it's your first season on the Knicks beat. You were on the Wizards last year. Before that, you were on the Thunder. Before that, you had a briefly a brief time on the Celtics. What is the the beat writer nomad life like? The beat writer nomad life is uh, it can be it can be lonely. It can be tough. Um, quite honestly, I'm just kind of happy to be back to it because I had the beat writer sitting at home and watching games life for about a year and a half during the pandemic, and that was. Way worse than the beat writer nomad life. I enjoy the beat life. I like going to other cities that I would otherwise not go to and being able to eat great meals in places that I've never been and finding the fun restaurants and getting to be around the team. So I, um, I'm, 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 I'm into it. It's, it's literally the only this job. You don't do this job <laughs> for the pay. You don't do this job for the flexibility. Uh, you literally only do this job because you enjoy the beat writer nomad life you don't even do the job because you love basketball because there are other things you can do in basketball you do the job because you're kind of unhealthily addicted to the lifestyle and i guess i am no i thought it was for the job security that it that it brings clearly yeah. which is you know, super great <laughs> uh, no i mean one, one thing that's interesting is you know the difference between the way you cover the league where you're focusing on one team and the way i do where i'm focusing on you know as as many different teams and players as i can it's like i wrote about the knicks or i wrote about specifically about rj barrett um, last week, I think. And now, you know, you might not see me write about the Knicks for another few months. And you've got like four different things that you've written about that are like things that are all over my radar. And I'm like, we got to talk about this. We got to talk about this. We got to talk about this. There's like four different things that you've already written so far. And I'm like, well, I don't know where to focus. So let's, let's start where both, what the one thing that both of us have written about so far, which is RJ Barrett. Um, I think you may have beaten me to it by a few days uh, writing about, his defense, and I wrote mostly about his offense. So whichever side of the ball you want, what, what have you seen from him this season? How is he different than last year? What are, you, what are your thoughts on him as a player, I guess, so far? I think the bigger def- the bigger difference is on Dean on offense. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the bigger improvement. Uh, he's he's just a lot more I, – I, I, if I were going to sum it up in one sentence, I'd say he's a lot more refined. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his footwork is much more purposeful. He 
has become quite good at closing out on shooters aggressively, but not following them. Uh, you know, maybe I, I don't. Maybe he's just more comfortable with the rule with the with the rules too. There's been so much, and and Steph Bondi with the Daily News did a story on this, and I thought it was a really good observation. But there's been so much talk of how the way that referees are calling fouls now and how it's affecting these offensive players like James Harden and Trey Young and the rest of those guys. Not as much talk about the other side of it, which is it's easier to close out on shooters now and it can affect uh, different players varying degrees. And there are guys who maybe if they're more aggressive uh, closing out on, on jump shooters, maybe they can feel more comfortable being more aggressive closing out on jump shooters. And uh, I think, I think RJ has become pretty good at closing out, which I actually think the Knicks have had some team-wide problems doing. There are some times where they just kind of don't close out as hard and guys get, get better, more open-feeling looks than they otherwise could. Um, his footwork is good around screens. He doesn't really get hung up on them. Uh, much better team defender. I just think he's become a really solid defensive player and is, has been – like Noel has been their best defender in the, in the few minutes that he's been able to get on the court. But, but I think RJ probably has a good argument as their second-best defender – uh, so far this season, right? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I do. And I think one of the big things that I wrote about is, so, you know, I had written, you know, mostly about his offensive improvement. I said the the thing that makes it most impressive to me is that he's made these strides while also for the first time in his career being asked to defend the primary perimeter threat on the opposing team. Most of the time last season, that was falling to Reggie Bullock. He had, I think, like the 12th or 13th, I can't remember the exact number it is, like, highest matchup difficulty at uh b-ball index and rj was down in like the the 180s or 190s out of 200 guys or so which you know makes sense when you have one guy that takes you know among the the toughest matchups in the league then obviously the guy that plays with him most often is going to be you know among the easier ones it's, it's not a slight to him it's just to say that's how they organized it last year this year with kemba and with fournier on the wing with him. He has to take the toughest perimeter matchup pretty, pretty much every night. And he's doing a really good job of it. I think so far, you know, there have been some issues here and there and he's not, he doesn't have like elite athleticism or elite straight line speed. So there are some kind of guys that can give him issues, but for the most part, he's, he's locked in. He's, he's like tuned into his responsibilities off the ball, which I think is really, really big for a player that's still as young as he is. You know, he's uh, 21, 22 years old. Like, that's not necessarily something you see from guys that age, but Tibbs isn't going to put you on the court if you're not locked into that, and he is pretty much all the time. And then I think the point you made about what, what Bondi said I think is important for RJ specifically too because his biggest strength, I think, on both sides of the court is his strength. He's just super strong. Nobody is going to you know out-physical him for the most part except for the guys you know like LeBron and whatnot that can out-physical everybody. And because they're not calling the game quite as tight, you can be – more tightly guarded on guys that are driving to the perimeter. And that allows him to stay closer to some of these guys that might be able to blow by him otherwise. And I think that's helped him a lot too. Yeah. No, I, he's, he's very comfortable being physical. He's really, really comfortable being physical, which is not always something that you see in 21 year olds. Uh, You know, that's, that's a thing that can be physical plays and acquired taste. You know, it's not always something that you see in somebody so young, and I think that's a good sign that his defense will probably continue to improve, continue to get better. You know, one of the things that scouts have said to me about him, and and 
And similar stuff gets said about Obi Toppin as they mentioned the high hip stuff. How good of a defender can he be if he's got high hips? And that's that's like an Obi Toppin thing because it affects your mobility, your kind of you know your lateral quickness. How good of a defender can you be if you've got high hips? Is a very common thing that scouts will say. And RJ's mm-hmm. kind of got those high hips, but but he kind of overcomes it with with strength and know-how. And honestly, he's a very good fundamental defender. Like he's, he stays in a, he's disciplined. He stays in a position to defend. You, you're very seldom going to look over and see him not in a defensive stance or not with his hands where they're supposed to be and things like that, which is like, that's like half the battle right there. Just stay in a defensive stance, keep your hands up, and just be in the spot you're supposed to be. And if you just do that, there's you are not going to play bad defense on the whole. You're just not. And and he's got that baseline pretty down, I think. And, um, you know, the other stuff he's getting pretty good at. Yeah, and, I mean, that was the biggest issue that people had with his defense in college was just that he wasn't locked in all the time and he didn't seem to be necessarily attuned to his responsibilities or always, you know, head on a swivel, eyes on the ball and his man at the same time. It was – it was more like focus and effort than being able to do things physically. Like I think it was pretty clear even from the time he was college and probably even before, you know, I didn't see much of him in in high school. Obviously I don't have the bandwidth to watch any of that. I barely have time for college players. I, you know, cram on prospects a few weeks before the draft, but he clearly had the physical capability to play defense for a while. He's six, six, he's well-built. He's got long arms. So even if he doesn't have elite athleticism, he has the physical traits required to be able to guard pretty much anybody on the wing. Maybe not the quickest point guards, maybe not the biggest of big wings, but he can guard standard size two and threes for the most part. And he's, he's done that really well. And, and I like, again, I think that doing what he's done defensively, like, or sorry, making the improvements he's made on offense, which I think mostly boil down to actually being the creator more often this year while doing what he's doing defensively, taking on so much more responsibility on that end is really impressive. Yeah, I mean, look, so much of what you're talking about is like something that's so hard for scouts to do is to be able to evaluate an 18-year-old's personality and say, mm-hmm. this is what so-and-so is going to be. And that's why I'm always skeptical when people talk about so-and-so doesn't have the fire or so-and-so has the fire at a young age. And then we just kind of we as like a basketball community do this thing where we say, well, this guy doesn't play with effort. He didn't play at effort at 18. And that's the effort's not a thing you can teach. So it'll never be good. And it's just a weird thing. And I'm not saying that it's never right. And I'm not saying that there's a better way to go about it, but to speak about those sorts of things with such certainty is like in, in very few other industries, do we say, Oh, well, this freshman in college didn't play with extraordinary effort all the time. This freshman in college didn't work with extraordinary effort during his chemistry class. So, <laughs> so at 25 years old, when he's a working professional, I am certain that he is not going to work really hard from nine to five. We just, we don't do that. We just do that in sports. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying there's a better way because you gotta, you gotta try to evaluate everything. But I, I, I don't know. I, I, I actually I am saying there's a better way. It's to it's to not talk about it with such incredible certainty because people evolve, they change. You're a kid when you're a freshman in college, and and eventually you become not a kid, and uh, you, you you know you become a pro, and you, you start to act like a pro sometimes. And I think one thing that's clear with RJ is you talk to anybody who's around him, 
they talk about his work ethic and and his care level and uh, you know he has spoken very openly about uh you know how how he has a very clear very direct goal that he wants to make he said he wants to be a first team all defense guy and that would obviously be an unbelievable accomplishment i'm not going to predict that that will happen but um you know he obviously is taking a lot of pride in that level and uh you know people can change from their teenage years that can that can happen people can evolve yeah i mean for me that's why i think it's always better to think about prospects in terms of like a range of outcomes and how likely they are to hit each level of those outcomes as opposed to like this guy is this and he's going to be this it's like well if this happens then he can be this and if this doesn't happen then he can be that and what do we think is most likely what's most developable de- developable developable some one of those words well, I, don't no, know. I don't think i don't think developable but i'm into it yeah what is most able to be developed what is not able to be developed things like that and you know i I think that you mentioned obviously like the the work ethic and the care level those are things that showed up in all of the scouting reports too right alongside like the you know he didn't seem focused on defense and he's taken all these shots that people are like are you a crazy person like and you know this is how I, i ended the story that i wrote about him on 538 it's like the the focus or not necessarily the focus, the the care level and the work ethic are winning out over the concerns that people had about him in other areas. And they're helping him sort of chip away at the weaknesses that he had coming into the league. And, and I think the biggest one that we've seen this year is, like I said, that the ability to create shots for himself more often from all areas of the floor. Like... Mm-hmm he wasn't really like necessarily shaking guys off the dribble when he was in college. The way he was beating them off the dribble was just by being stronger than them and like putting his shoulder down and finishing through contact or over contact or whatever at the rim. And it's like, it's a really good skill to be able to finish through contact or, or over defenders or around defenders or whatever it is near the basket. It's a lot better to not have to do that at all because you got by your defender and you got yourself, you know, a free lane to the rim. And the way that his handle has improved and the way that his ability to put together combinations of moves has improved, he still uses that strength as sort of a baseline to get to the basket. But he's got, because he has just a little bit more wiggle than he had before, he's able to get into that straight line drive more easily than he was in the past. And he's doing a lot more creating for himself, both going toward the basket and creating for himself on pull-ups or on, you know, off the dribble threes, like he's going to have made more off the dribble threes this season by like two weeks from now than he did in his first two seasons combined. Yeah. I mean, look, he also has a better understanding for angles and that's something that just comes as you get more reps and you get older, you have better understanding for the speed of the NBA game and NBA defenses and all of that. Like the end of the new Orleans, that game he had, uh, he had his career high. He had 35, uh, Yeah, right? 35, 36, whatever it was. And the end of the New Orleans game, they ran the same play. Like, mm. I forget how many times in a row, a bunch of times in a row, which basically gets RJ the ball with the back with his back to the basket as the primary option over on the right wing. Uh, and he can give it back up at the top of the key, and, and it often sends him around a dribble handoff. And he's so assertive going around those dribble handoffs gets him downhill, a, you know, one play gets him a, a lefty layup. The next play, he could get the lefty layup. He reads the game perfectly, throws this beautiful wraparound pass to Taj Gibson down low, who, you know, dumps it off to him and, and Gibson finishes at the hoop. And the way that he understands the angles 
to be able to make those plays happen. You know, purposefulness can 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 be an incredible weapon when you don't have elite speed. Uh, I think the greatest example of that is James Harden, right? Who is extremely quick, but in terms of straight line speed, he's not Russell Westbrook, mm-hmm. but he's so purposeful in his movement and has a better understanding of angles of any guy in the league. Uh, and so that is more important than having incredible speed and just not knowing how to use it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think RJ's understanding of those of those angles of, of being able, okay, I, I am now able to just brush my hip against the screener's hip when I come around this dribble handoff and I'm going to do it every single time and I'm going to be more precise with my movement and, and that's going to free me more. Um, his, his, he has a tempo when he, you know, maneuvers a pick and roll and that kind of stuff. I mean, I think, I think all of that enables you to free yourself up more when you don't have that kind of elite speed. And, and, and I think that's really shown this. Like there's been a lot of good this year. For sure. And, and dribble handoffs are such a good action for players who don't have elite speed, but do have something else. Like if they have strength or if they have like not necessarily speed, but like short area quickness, like it enables you to get a head start on your man and use the skill that will allow you to create separation from them without having to do the work of getting the separation yourself. You can make more separation instead of having to create all of it. And that does a really good job for him. And then, you know, you brought up Harden as a guy where he doesn't necessarily have the elite speed, but he's just, he's so controlled and knows exactly what every inch of the floor means in terms of his attack and and what his defender is doing. And it, it reminds me where before the draft, um, the comparison I made for him was like a Jalen Rose type, but with strength instead of slitheriness, where the best thing for him to do was going to be attacking closeouts from the second side and beating his defender off the dribble by just being stronger and being able to get into the paint. And then, you know, we've seen he can make the right read on passes. He's a good passer when he like is looking up for it, which is most off. I would say in the half court, he does a way better job of it than he does on the break. When he gets on the break, he's pretty single-minded going to the rim. And that's been working honestly really well for him. So you know, don't necessarily want him to change that. But, you know, I, I think that that comp has been pretty interesting so far in terms of the way it's playing out for his offensive uh, development. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't get too carried away with that. I don't think he's that level. I mean, that's no, a, no, not James Harden. I was saying like Jalen, like the Jalen. Oh, Rose. oh, the Jalen Rose one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm good with that. that yeah. Um, so before we get into um, two other young guys and then some team stuff, we got a question from Xfinity man, early MVP candidates. So just give me two or three, whatever you got early MVP candidates so far. You know, somebody, I did a mailbag earlier today, which you can go check out over at the athletic. News. Oh yeah. Fred's and, top uh, five MVPs. He doesn't have any Knicks. Spoiler alert. Um, I did not have any Knicks. Somebody asked me in the mailbag who my way too early MVP ballot would be. Um, and if the season ended today, which would be an incredible development and would put me out of a job. But if the season ended today, I mean, I think it would be between KD and Jokic. A boring answer, I know. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd probably have to throw Steph in there at this point, too. I had, I had, I had Steph there. Um, yeah, and then when you had uh, Jimmy Butler fourth, I think I, I, put, I put Jimmy Butler and Demar Derozan fourth and fifth because I, as I said in that story, you know what? I'm I'm not one. I don't give I don't give votes just to acknowledge something on a real ballot, but I sure as hell can do it in a mailbag. 
<laughs> and, uh, and DeMar DeRozan's been awesome. And I just wanted to write about DeMar DeRozan because DeMar DeRozan has been so good and uh, is a huge reason why the Bulls are winning. And something I didn't put in that story is every single year, except for like one or two, DeMar DeRozan's teams are worse when he's on the floor. Mm-hmm. That was true in Toronto, and it's true in San Antonio, and it is not true in Chicago. The Chicago Bulls have been much better. When DeMar DeRozan's yep. been on the floor. And that's despite playing a ton of minutes with Vucevic, who is shooting like 11% from the field this year and like somehow can't make layups or whatever. Yeah, He's so, so awesome. this, is, this is the basketball reference, but basketball reference has the Bulls almost 15 points per 100 possessions better when DeMar DeRozan's on the floor. Um, Wild, considering history in his career. Pre- but. Previously in his career, he's been in the league since 2009. This is year 13 for him. His team has been better when he's been on the floor. Do you know how many times before this year his team has been um, better when he's been on the floor? I'll say two. One. One. Wow. The 2012 Raptors, that wasn't even a full season. That was the lockout season. The 2012 Raptors were better when he was on the floor. And every other year his team has been worse when he's been playing. That's pretty and, incredible. Uh, yeah, it is. And uh, props to DeMar DeRozan. He's having an incredible year. As foul rates around the league plummet, his are right at his career average. He's getting to the free throw line a ton. He's shooting 50-something percent on twos. He's taking two threes a game and hitting a good percentage. His his defense is – I mean, Chicago's top five in defense. Uh, and he is not – he's not the reason they're top five, but their his defense in San Antonio last year fell off a cliff. It was really, really not good, and I think it's been better this year. I just think he's having an incredible year. And uh, I had Jimmy Butler on there as well, who is just the the cog who makes that entire machine in Miami go. And that team is ridiculously good. And Duncan Robinson is not shooting well, and Kyle Lowry is not shooting well. And yet Miami looks incredible and, uh, you know, it's Jimmy Butler. It's other stuff too. Bam is great, but yeah, I mean they're destroying teams in transition. Um, De- Demar is just such a better passer now than he was early in his earlier yeah. in his career too. But you know what? Not that's just better, not but way new. more willing. That's not new. Like he was, he had a great passing season in San Antonio last year. Oh yeah, and um, the year before. Yeah, you know, I, we did we did something, and I I do the athletic NBA show on Tuesdays, and. During the offseason, before DeMar signed with Chicago, I, I insisted on having this segment on the pod where I tried to will DeMar DeRozan to Chicago. Now, as part of that segment, I did not advise giving him $85 million, and I also did not advise giving up a first-round pick for him. But that I, who they could use right now with Patrick yes, Williams out. That too. Uh, but but I, I wasn't necessarily killing Chicago. A lot of people killed Chicago for that. Yep. I, I understood what they were trying to do because DeRozan, especially last year, San Antonio played him a lot at the four. Mm-hmm. And they played him along with a lot of other guards. And I thought he looked so much more comfortable there. And I thought he was a better passer last season than I've ever seen him. He had such a good distributing season for the Spurs. And I just kind of thought, okay, you know what you can do? This 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 kind of works. You got Lonzo, who's a point guard, but he's really more of an off-ball point guard. Mm-hmm. And and Levine is a guy who, yeah, you can put the ball in his hands a lot, but ultimately he's an excellent off-ball player. He's become this hyper-efficient scorer. 
And he's so valuable if you run around screens and he's still a really high turnover guy. So what you can do is you can have DeRozan kind of be a release valve for Levine and for Lonzo. And, and he can operate with shooters around him and he doesn't have to play the two. You can play him with the three, you can play him with the four at times and you can you can see how it works out. And I don't think Chicago is seven and three good like they are right now. I imagine that defense is going to fall out of the top five. If they end up in the top 10, like – that would be really shocking and would probably mean that Billy Donovan, you know, is ends up on a lot of coach of the year ballots. But, but uh, you know, I, I, I think their offense is legitimately good. And I think that's, that's at least the team that's going to be in the top 10 for sure. And uh, DeRozan has been amazing. He deserves props. He's having an incredible year. Yep. I'm with you. I mean, I was very high on their offense and very, very, very low on their defense coming into the year. Obviously, the defense has been a surprise. We'll see if it keeps up. But for sure, he he deserves his props. And I think that, you know, I would be hard-pressed to come up with, like, you know, five guys that definitely, definitely, definitely deserve to be on a ballot over him 10 games into the season. Granted, it's 10 games into the season, but that's when we were asked the question. So that's when we're going to answer it. Um, yeah. Is there is there, <laughs> is there anybody else we're, we're honorable mentioning here? Uh, yeah. I mean, like Giannis... Even though the Bucks haven't been yeah, all that Bucks good are so far, six, so I didn't do it. I'm not concerned about them. But no, I'm not concerned about them either. Like you know, um, they're missing you know. guys. Middleton's yeah. out. Holiday's missed more than half of their games. Uh, you know, Brooks. Brook has played what like there. one game. Like yeah, yeah, they're gonna be. They'll be fine. Um, Paul, anyway, Paul let's, we're gonna. Paul George. What's that? Paul George. He's having an incredible year. Oh yeah, he looks great. Um, we're going to bring it back to the Knicks because I did say that this would be an all-things Knicks podcast. I want to talk about the two other young guys. Um, first, Obi Toppin looks a lot better this season, but we he does not get to play very often because he's basically Julius Randle's direct backup um, with both Mitchell Robinson and Nerlens Noel dealing with injuries right now. You would think that maybe you'll see more of that two-big lineup but I or one big lineup, I guess, whatever, the, the Julius Randle-Obi Toppin lineup basically. But I could also see Tibbs easily pivoting to playing Taj Gibson for like 38 minutes a game. So who really knows? You know, I would think and slash hope that we'll see more of that unit with the two of them in the front court. And then, you know, just why does Tibbs hate Emmanuel quickly and by extension me and play him like six minutes a half and that's it. Like last night I was like, he hits two threes in a row on like four possessions and then literally right after the second one, he comes out after having played like six minutes and they were like plus 12. I was like, this is just, I'm going to, it's going to drive me nuts all year. He wasn't shooting well, obviously for the first few games of the season, getting going a little bit more over the last couple. But I mean, what have you seen from the the two rookies from last year? And do you think that there's a chance for either of them or both of them to play larger roles without any injuries to Kemba or Rose for quickly or Robinson Noel for Toppin? I would say there's a better chance for Quickly's role to grow than for Toppin's role to grow. That's my guess. I don't know, but that's my guess. Uh, just that? because, because I think it'll be easier for him to overtake Alex. Interesting. Uh, and then for then for Toppin to overtake any of the bigs who are ahead of him. Tibbs just because the difference is here's 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 my let's get philosophical. Quickly overtaking Alec Burks. All that takes is for Tibbs to think that quickly is better than Alec Burks. And that's it. For Toppin to take minutes from a healthy Noel, a healthy Mitchell Robinson, then that doesn't take Tibbs thinking 
that Toppin is better than those guys. It takes a fundamental change in how Tibbs views basketball. Mm-hmm. He wants a rim protector on the floor as much as possible. That is how he views the game. Defensively, he believes in making sure he has someone to wreak havoc in the paint as much as possible. That's why they re-signed Noel. That's why they have Mitchell Robinson. They want 48 minutes of a guy who can swat shots and deter shots and scare away ball handlers at the rim. You only want that for a whole game. And and that's why he shies away from that Randall Toppin lineup, even though we see those two guys go out there in the front court and the Knicks get out running. And if they get stops, then you know the pace of the game picks up and there's more offense and all that stuff. Um, I think Toppin could make it, the decision a little bit tougher on him if he started hitting threes. Uh, I think that would change a lot about that lineup because the reality is that lineup is more of a transition lineup than it is a small half-court lineup. Toppin spaces to the corners in those lineups, but defenses aren't, you know – rushing out to close out on him, they'll, they'll still happily help off of him because he's not hitting those corner threes with enough consistency. If he starts to hit those corner threes at just like a like a 36, 38% clip, that changes a lot. We haven't seen that yet. But but ultimately, like I don't know if that changes how he's used because Tibbs still wants a rim protector there. He still believes that's the way that they can shine the best defensively. And he believes that even though this team is struggling defensively right now, he does believe the identity of this team should start with the defense over the offense. Uh, and 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 that means, in his mind, playing. And, and, and I just, I'm not guessing on this. I know this because he said it many times. He, in his mind, that he believes that, that rim protector should be out there, and that's, that's more important. Uh, and if Julius Randle is going to play 36 minutes a night, and that's pretty much all going to be at the four, and again, we're talking about when everybody is healthy, mm-hmm. That really just leaves 12 minutes, 11 minutes for Toppin as a backup four, and that's kind of all you're getting. I think he's much better. I think he's a good player who can contribute to winning, but I just it's, it, it's going to take a philosophical change from Tibbs in order for Toppin to get more minutes because well, you're not going to play Julius Randle 27 minutes a game. No. He's still going to play 36 minutes, so the only way to get him there is either play him at the three, which I don't think that's happening, or play him at the five. Or uh, you play Randall at the five and him at the four, however you want to call it, and uh, you know that's that means eating into eating into Noel and eating into Robbins. So that's why I say quit. I yeah, good I'm, no, I, I I am totally with you. If everyone is healthy, um, I think that you know so far, obviously uh, Robinson and Noel have been more injured than Walker and Rose. We don't know. If that will continue, obviously Walker and Rose have both had injury issues throughout their careers, so it's possible we could see that too. But I mean, I, I think that if Tibbs was willing to play um, Randall and Toppin for extended minutes together, they just wouldn't have re-signed Nerlens Noel, and they would have said, you know, Taj Gibson's going to be the backup center, Robinson's going to be the starting center, and we can go small if we want to whenever we want to. But Tibbs, like you said, wants to have that room protector on the court at all times. And that worked extremely well for them last year. That was the basis of their defense. They were, you know, the best, I believe, uh, rim protecting team in the league in terms of percentage that opponents made at the rim. This year, their percentage allowed at the rim is actually even better. 
um, 58.1% on shots in the restricted area this year, 60.5 last year. They were first last year. They're second this year. Incredibly, the Pistons are the number one defense around the rim at the moment, I which sort of boggles my mind. Yeah, Beef Stu. Um, he's, a, he's a monster. One thing I will say, I think the should, oh, they go small with Obi Toppin conversation gets a lot quieter. And I don't... I don't think it's a, it's a dumb conversation at all. It's definitely worth having. Uh, I, I, I might even agree with it. But but this conversation, not nearly as loud if Nerlens Noel has been healthy. Though. Not yeah. nearly as loud. Because, man, Nerlens Noel in that Milwaukee game, and even though they were bad in that Cleveland like every single second he has been on the floor this year, he has been ridiculous defensively. He had nine deflections in the Milwaukee game. And three seasons. Way better on defense than Robinson. Robinson is kind of oh worrying God, yeah. me a little bit on defense. Um, we're talking, we're talking about rim protection, and we always talk about rim protection with Robinson and Noel. And we talk about the numbers shooting at the at the at the rim and all that, and all that is true. Noel's Noel's a really good rim, and Mitchell Robinson's a really good rim protector. Both those things are extremely true. Noel's Noel is a hell of a pick and roll defender. Uh, I mean, he's he, just way better in space than Robinson is. Like he he gets his hands. On so many passes, uh, and and you have Nerlens Noel on the floor, you got a pretty good chance of playing good defense just because of that. And uh, I just I think this conversation not nearly as loud if the idea of Nerlens Noel just playing stifling defense for twenty six minutes a night is fresher on people's minds. Yeah, I mean I think I'm with you, but there's also then you look at so the big topic of conversation last year with the defense was opponent shooting and how they were on the right side of opponent shooting regression. I looked it up uh-huh. the other day. And so last year on wide open threes, opponents shot 34.7% on the eighth most wide open threes per game, despite the fact that they played at the, the second slowest pace in the league. This year, Opponents are taking the most wide open threes per game, despite the fact that they're like 25th or 26th in pace. So obviously that means they're giving up an absolute ton of wide open threes and they're shooting 41.7% on those shots. That right there is opponent shooting variance and basically the difference between being a top five defense and where they've been this year, which is in the bottom 10 the whole year. Now, just like you would have expected it to expected it to, Last year, you would expect that their opponent shooting on wide open threes will regress toward the mean. But if they regress toward the mean from where they are now, that's looking at more like an average defense, and they need to be better than that. So it's they've got to do something else too, and that's where I think Noel comes in, like you said. Well, I will, I will bet you, I would put a good amount of money that a disproportionate amount of those wide open threes are coming in transition. They are giving up so many threes in transition. Like the issue with their transition, which has not been good, is that they're giving up. They're, they're not. They're not even giving up layups in transition. They're giving up wide open threes, uh, and it's been it's been such a problem. And that might not be something that Noel helps with a ton because ultimately Noel's going to run to the rim in transition. I don't. I don't really know. I'd have to think about it more. Uh, you know, he's going to make a bigger difference in the half court because that's where his skills are more amplified. Um, but but yeah, I mean that's like. Is definitely a problem, and that's why they're what twenty fifth in points allowed per possession right now. Um, I don't have it uh, in front of me, I'm but sure they were they were twenty third the other day. Now, yeah, they're twenty fifth, tied for twenty fifth with the Orlando Magic, which is not a sentence you want to be saying about your team 
on uh, on either side of the ball. I don't think you know. No, but they're but they're fourth in offense still. Yeah, and look, that's some of that is this is the bet that they made in the offseason was we're going to swap out Alfred Payton and Reggie Bullock for Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier and bet that the improvement we make on offense outweighs the the dip we take on defense. And, you know, so their net rating is plus two per 100 possessions this year. It was plus 2.4 per 100 possessions last year. So, so far, the bet that they made has been essentially right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense. I, I I think a little I think it goes beyond the the Kemba and Fournier stuff. Like I don't think the defensive problems are oh no 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 fully because of Kemba and Fournier, and I don't no. think the offensive improvement is just because of those guys too. But but they definitely played a hand in both of those things. Of course, yeah. Them. I wasn't saying it's attributable specifically to them. It was yeah. more like I, philosophically. I I also yeah. don't think the difference defensively between Kemba and Alfred Payton is as large as it's stated. Yeah, I mean, it's not that Payton was particularly good, and it's not that uh, Kemba has been particularly bad. It's more of the, I guess, things like, like I said, RJ now has to be the top perimeter defender, and that's a guy who's a better helper, not in help position anymore. And now you have Fournier helping, and that, like you got to maybe make some concessions to not have Kemba guarding the guy with the ball in his hands all the time because you don't want his knees to hurt anymore. Like there's just you know it's a little bit philosophically different, I think, on that end, just because you do have two guys who at times can be pretty big targets for yeah, uh, for opposing true. offenses. Um, and 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 look, one thing. I mean, this is such an obvious point, but I need to make it after the conversation we just had about him. You know a great way for them to improve their defense while changing absolutely nothing? Get uh, the bigs healthy. Yeah. Just just, just have Nolan's Noel on the floor. He's barely played. Guess what? Just play Nolan's Noel. If you, if, and, and Noel is questionable now for tomorrow with he sprained his knee last night. and He's questionable. And, and Mitch is questionable. And, and I don't know. I don't know. He's got the hip flexor thing now. He has not looked as mobile this year. Tibbs has talked a lot about his conditioning, and he's talked about conditioning, which he, has, he wasn't able to run and stuff because he had the foot injury. It's hard to be in proper condition when you come back from a foot injury that inhibits your ability to do cardio and all that. So I, I get that. It makes perfect sense. But I just wondered how much his uh, – you know, he's not, he's not as springy. His mobility is not as much there. And he very intentionally put on weight, you know, muscle – as well this year and tried to get bigger and you know I, I there were some people that I spoke to and they 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 were wondering as that was happening before he even came back like is this the right play for him his advantage is the fact that he looks like he's jumping off of a trampoline every time it's his athleticism and and his his quickness and you know just how how high he gets and all of that matched together and you know does does he need that extra weight is that gonna put a burden on his body that's not worth it. Um, and, and I don't know how much of it is that. I don't know if he's been secretly dealing with this hip flexor, which obviously would affect mobility, but he's not, you know, that that all over the place, Mitchell Robinson, that we're as used to seeing. Uh, you know, we need to see more games before we make any sort of grand, uh, you know, any sort of grand proclamations about him. But that's, that's something that's on my radar. And... Uh, you know, if you get if you get last year Mitchell Robinson, uh, and you get just normal, healthy Nolan's Noel like that, 
That is a great way to think in defense. They will not be 25th in defense if they have both those guys healthy and good to go. Yeah, no, I, I am 100% with you. This is also part of the reason why it was so important for them to have all the depth that they had because, you know, they – they need those bodies at point guard because the two top guys they have at that position are guys with extensive and recent injury histories. And they need the bodies at center because everybody among their centers is guys that have extensive and recent injury histories. And, you know, it it's really bad when you have both of those guys hurt or not like just dealing with something at the same time, even if they can play and they're not 100 percent themselves like it affects things uh, on both ends of the court and obviously specifically uh, on defense, um, the the big conversation offensively coming into the year was that they wanted to take more threes. I think they said, um, I think they said they wanted to hit four, take the forty per game, 37, 37 to forty, right? thirty-seven to forty per game. Uh, beginning of the season, that looked like it might be low. Um, right now, they're actually at thirty-eight point four per game, but that number, and I've been following it because I thought it was unusual early in the year the number has been steadily dropping over the last uh few games or so they were up around you know 48 49 first in the league in terms of their the share of their threes that were coming behind the arc after the first few games in the season now they're down to 10th 42.7 percent the league average by the way this season is 40.2 percent so they still are above average which is a big 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 change from last year when I think that they were like third or fourth to last in the league in terms of the share of their shots that came from three, they, they, they were 34.7% last year, which was tied for 24th in a league where the average was 39.2. So they've gone essentially from like four and a half percent below average to two and a half percent above average in terms of, you know, the difference between their three point rate and the league average three point rate, um, have they said anything about taking fewer threes recently? Are guys talking about making sure that they want to keep getting those shots up from the outside? I mean, you could basically track their offensive performance in games this year to whether or not their threes went in, which is, you know, not that unusual for the NBA these days. Like, if your threes go in, you're probably going to win. If they don't, you're probably going to lose. Uh, and that's been uh, pretty true for them so far. Yeah, I mean, look, if you ask them, be shocked by this. If if you ask them about the nights where they don't take as many threes, it's always, you know, we take what the game gives to us. Mm-hmm. You read the game, the game tells you what to do. And that's a very NBA player and NBA coach way to answer that question. Uh, I think there are certain nights where um, where it doesn't it doesn't go as well as they want, and it's not necessarily the game telling them what to do. I find that a lot of it, has to do with whether they can get live ball turnovers early in the year, you know, like that Orlando game where they took 54 mm-hmm. and they made 24 threes. A lot of that stuff was just because they were able to get the ball and get going, you know, and they just push. And it's not even necessarily getting these early shot clock, you know, transition threes. It's, it's okay. We've got momentum going down the court and now there's a center guarding a point guard and, yeah, we're not in transition anymore. They're set up and we're set up, but we are set up optimally and we can exploit this mismatch, you know? And then the way that they're getting threes is is not – and I don't mean this is a criticism at all. It's, it's a great way to get threes. It's just – it's not like they're running these ridiculously complicated plays to get threes. They're just a lot of driving kick, you know? There are a lot of they, – they, they try to start their plays early and 
they try to hit the paint. And then when they hit the paint, they try to kick back out for a three. And then that guy who they kick to is either putting up a catch in three or it's a catch and go. And then that guy, you know, Fournier kicks to RJ and RJ feels like he's contested. So now RJ tries to get into the paint and then he's going to try to kick to someone. And they kind of just repeat the process until they get back out. Uh, And I think sometimes they can get, they can get caught doing that. I think when the defense is set and everybody's on their primary matchups, it's harder to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think on the nights where they're able to get out running, even if they're not necessarily scoring in transition, uh, you know, they, they're, they're able to get more of those shots. And look, that, that starts with being able to actually get some stops. And that's something they haven't always done. Like when Ricky Rubio is hitting eight threes against you, yeah. it's, not as, it's not as easy to do. So, um, no, I well, that, that Cleveland I, game too, I, they got killed on the defensive glass for yeah, the yeah. majority of the game. And that stops you from getting out on the break too. And I yeah. think it, in the Toronto game was another one of their uh, worst rebounding games of the year. And that was another game where they didn't take a ton of three or no, not Toronto. Um, it's the game they lost to, they lost to Toronto and then they lost to, they lost to Indiana, Indiana. Yeah. It was like the. I don't think it was back to back, but they back they lost their back to back games. They didn't, you know, rebound all that well against uh, defensive rebound all that well against Indiana either, and that I think prevented them from getting into some of their threes. But you know, like yeah, the, the ways you're saying of creating them, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was gonna say. I mean, look, it it helps. Then, like, you play Orlando two out of three times to start the year. <laughs> you know, like that. That's part of the reason I play, and they were doing it in two. But part of the reason they were also doing it in the preseason is because they were playing their starters 34 minutes a game and everybody else was playing their starters preseason minutes. And, you know, they, they had, you know, like they play Washington in that final preseason game. And Washington, which is obviously a good team and is playing well now, you know, Washington pulls all of its starters and goes with its second and third stringers to close the fourth quarter. And, you know, the, 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 the Knicks come back against the Wizards and, overcome a 19-point deficit, and they win. But it's because they played Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett and the rest of their starters the whole fourth quarter. And those guys beat up on second and third stringers, which is what they should do, but, you know, they should do. So, uh, you know, that, that I think, had some effect on their ability to create good standstill open threes in the preseason. And then, you know, they play a double overtime game, which inflates their, you know, aggregate three-point numbers. And, sure. and they get two against Orlando to start. And then it kind of started to fall. It's not like the three-point numbers are bad, by the way, and they're still making a no. percentage of them. So I, I, think, I think they're fine. They, they, they don't really play five-out lineups. They, they have a good amount of three-point shooting. They don't have the most three-point shooting in the league. I would say based on the roster they have, based on the personnel they have, you know, Noel doesn't shoot threes. Um, you know, Robinson doesn't shoot threes. Toppin's not a three-point shooter. Uh, I, I think they're taking a good amount of threes for them. There's there's nobody that I look at on this roster and I think that guy should be taking more threes or that guy is passing up too many open threes. Like, I think they're doing a good job maximizing their personnel in terms of shot selection and all that. And you look at their shot charts and, and it's, it's, it's really good. It's really optimal. Yeah, and look, if if they go from twenty fourth or twenty fifth in three point share to, to the you know the back half of the top ten where they are right now, that is a massive improvement and a huge sign for a Tibbs team. Tibbs teams are basically always at the bottom of the league in terms of the share of their shots that come from behind the three point line. It, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a philosophical change, but if they're just able to take more of those, like 
you're just basically giving away points when you're that far below average in terms of the number of your shots that come from three. And when you're not a very good offensive team to begin with, like they weren't last year, giving away those points is, you know, especially damaging. Obviously, they've been significantly better on offense this year, and some of that is the taking of threes itself. Um, you know, you would expect, I would think, quickly to start shooting better from three in particular, where, you know, and he has obviously over the last couple of games, like the guy was, a, you know, a borderline 40% three-point shooter last year. I don't think you'd expect him to shoot 30% or whatever he is right now. And, you know, even a guy like Randall is not shooting as well from three as he did last year. Fournier is not shooting as well from three as he did last year. So even if guys like Kemba and, and Rose, who are shooting like in the mid-40s right now, even if they come back to the pack a little bit, I mean, I think you can expect some of the other guys to to sort of um, to mitigate that drop-off a little bit. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. And they shot a great percentage as a team from three last year. They just oh, didn't yeah. take many of them. That's part of why, you know, you watch them and you're like, why don't they take more of these? They're shooting a ridiculous percentage. Yeah, so um, the last thing I want to talk to you about is over the next month or so, I think they've got a pretty tough schedule if you're looking at it. Some of it is like Milwaukee, they're still not going to have potentially all of their guys back yet when they play that next game uh, tomorrow. But looking at the schedule between now, like today is the ninth. If you look at it between now and um, December 14th, they've got Milwaukee, Charlotte, Indiana, uh, Chicago, the Lakers, Phoenix, Atlanta, Brooklyn, Chicago again, Denver, San Antonio, the Pacers, Toronto, Milwaukee, Golden State. I, I skipped two games in there against Orlando and Houston. Every other team in there is either like a definite playoff team or a playoff hopeful team. It's a really tough stretch over the next month plus that includes like the start of a uh, five road games out of seven stretch too. I think we're going to learn a whole lot about them this next whatever it is, 37, 38 days or so. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, look, they have a disproportionate, disproportionate amount of home games coming up, which, which will help during that stretch. I also <laughs> think what you just said is kind of a testament to how good the East is right now. Like I, I wrote today, I, I, I basically feel like there are 13 over 500 teams in the East, even though there aren't. You know, I look at Indiana four and seven or whatever they are, and I'm like, that's an over 500 team. That's the quality of an over 500. That's a solid team. Losing on the road to Indiana, I, when the Knicks lost on the road to Indiana, my thought wasn't this is a terrible, humiliating loss to the number 13 team in the East. It was, it was, uh, you know, the Miles Turner hit a million threes, and 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 Indiana has has good players and a great coach, and uh, you know they lost on the road. Okay. That's fine. They didn't play great in that game at all, but it wasn't a bad loss. You know, Toronto, I didn't think that was a bad loss. Toronto's playing well. They have a lot of talent and ridiculously well coached. It's like both those teams could miss the play-in tournament. You know, yeah. you know like the East like is- five of the seven below 500 teams are the Hornets, Bucks, Celtics, Hawks, and Pacers. Like Those are good teams. Yeah. Four of them made the playoffs last year and one made – or sorry, three of them made the playoffs and the two others made the play-in. Yeah. Those are good teams. Yeah. Those like, are you know, teams. you got the Cavs and Wizards over 500 this year. You got the the Raptors over 500 so far. The Bulls. The Heat look better. The Bulls are over 500. Like, the Sixers are playing really well. Like, it's just really, really tough. And they're in, you know, probably the best division in the East, too. Like, right now, Boston has the worst record in the division. And Boston's yeah. good. Like, a lot of people thought that they might have been the third best team in the East coming into the season. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, every every team in the East is either playing well or I look at and I say, eh, they'll turn it around. Like, I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about Boston. They'll feel like they'll turn it around, but they have weird, like, Boston drama. They always have weird crap going on in that locker room, and I don't, I don't know if that's just going to bite them in the ass or not. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like Atlanta will turn it around. Atlanta has been horrible defensively. Nate McMillan is a very good defensive coach. I just don't see Atlanta being a, a this bad of a defense at full strength all year. There's too much talent on that roster. They showed too well last year. I just feel like they're going to turn it around. And then I look at these other teams, and it's like I don't think Chicago is a top three team. I don't think the Wizards are you know a home court advantage team. But, like, I don't know. The Wizards are really deep. Like, that might be the deepest team in the NBA. That's It's very team. similar to the Knicks. And they, they just have, like, 12 guys – we were like, that's a, an NBA rotation player or better. 12 guys, and they don't even have Thomas Bryan or Rui Hachimura. Yep. Who, who both fit that description, too. Uh, they just, like, they're, they're just going to, they're just crawling with forwards and centers. It's crazy. They're going to have multiple forwards and centers. They're going to come back. They're going to have Daniel Gafford, who they just paid. They're going to have Montrez Harrell, who's averaging 20 and 10 and is, you know, is a six, is a former six man of the year guy who might be playing the best basketball ever. He's, he's getting like right every now. rebound within three area codes of himself right now, and he's playing the best defense I've ever seen. Uh, and and they're going to bring back Thomas Bryant, who you know I, I covered the Wizards for three years, and so I'm very familiar with Thomas Bryant's game. And in my opinion, is an extremely underrated offensive center. I mean, mm-hmm. he is unbelievably efficient. It's wild, like he. He literally shoots 75% plus at the rim every year. And, and he shoots threes. Yeah, <laughs> at, at, a, at a 40% clip. Like, not, he doesn't just shoot them. He makes them. He shoots 40% threes, and he is a screener, and he doesn't eat the ball. He doesn't post up. Whenever he touches the ball, it's like quick decision to get rid of it right away. He just goes into a dribble handoff. Like, he is, he is an extremely good offensive, like, ridiculously good modern offensive center. Um, and he's not, he hasn't even played for them. And, and I don't know what they're going to do. I'm sure, it's a great, I'm sure they're thrilled about that problem. It's a great problem to have, you know, when Hachimura comes back. It's like Kuzma's been extremely good for them. Mm-hmm. You can't pull Kuzma from – you can't take minutes away from Kuzma. He's been really good. He is also getting every rebound in sight. He's averaging like 10 rebounds a game. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose you could take minutes from Abdiya, but he's playing pretty well too. Like it's, it's not like he's, he's a uh... – they're a top five defense, and he's been arguably their best defense. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's not even playing that much because they don't have enough minutes for him to play like 30 minutes a night. Yeah. So, I, I mean, he's not he's not doing anything offensively, but oh my goodness, he's been – I mean, he was guarding, he was guarding Giannis and doing an incredible job the other night. Like, he, he is really becoming like a legitimately extremely good wing defender. Like, he's like way defender. stronger than I thought he was, or at least way stronger than he was last year. Um it was pretty. It's pretty impressive so far. The Hawks, yeah. by the way, are much like the Knicks on the wrong side of shooting variance right now. Opponents are just hitting a lot of stuff, including like in the paint, like those you know back paint shots that they have to take because Capella is right underneath the basket. They're just hitting a ton of those right now. And um, yeah. if you want to want to hear more Hawks, by the way, I'm talking with Brad Rowland from uh, Peach Peachtree Hoops. I think it, it's called, if I'm remembering mm-hmm. correctly. Uh, talking with him in this time slot again on Thursday 
We're going to do a lot of Hawk stuff, talk some some Trey Young, the DeAndre Hunter defensive performance against Luka in the first game of the season that I still can't get out of my brain. Like, a whole lot of Hawk stuff on Thursday, by the way. Yeah, and uh, and the Wizards are on the other side of the variance. Where oh, yeah. The, the, the are, Wizards started off that way last year, too, where the, at the beginning of the season, there was, like, nobody was getting to the rim against them. Not like They, they finished that way, too. They had an, a remarkable shot profile for a bad defense last year. It was one of the weirdest things. No one got to the rim. They didn't give up corner threes. They were like top 10 in the league and in, in not allowing corner threes. I think they allowed the fewest shots at the rim in the league. They allowed the most mid-range attempts in the league. They had the best shot profile of any defense in the league, and they were 20th in points allowed per possession. Yeah, and the Knicks <laughs> were the opposite. They were 29th in opponent shot profile and second in opponent effective field goal percentage and you know we're seeing like they have a a slightly better opponent shot profile this year but we're just seeing opponents hit all of these threes this year and again you would expect that to regress but they need to make uh other improvements too and you know i would imagine throughout the rest of the season we'll see you talking about that and uh, a whole lot more stuff um fred thank you so much for doing this man appreciate you you can find fred at The Athletic. You can find him on Twitter at Fred Katz. You can find him at press conferences asking questions uh, to himself on occasion, which is a joke that I will never, ever, ever let go of um, for the rest of our lives. I was just realizing the other day, you've covered like seven different teams since I've known you, which is only like 10 years. <laughs> covered a lot of teams. Yeah. I got to make my way around the league. I, my, my goal is to be the Ish Smith in NBA beers. Like you were covering the Clippers pretty closely when we first met. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was blogging about the Clippers. I was, you know, I was in college. I was a Clippers fan, and I was blogging about the Clippers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, blogging about uh, the Clippers. Did, did did a little bit of net stuff here and there when I was in New York after college, and, and then just kind of around the league stuff at Fox Sports, and then the Thunder and the Celtics. How long were you on the, on the Celtics beat for? Like three months, if I'm remembering correctly. I was on the Celtics beat for as long as one can possibly be on a beat without covering a game. So I I started at Mass Live as a Celtics beat reporter um, the Monday after they lost the 2018 Eastern Conference Finals. And my last day there, for those who don't know, because The Athletic offered me a job out of nowhere and I did not expect it and couldn't turn it down. Um, and that was when I went to cover the Wizards. Uh, my last day was the Friday before media day. So I, I covered the Celtics for an entire offseason. Well, we're thankful to have you here now. I hope to see you at a game soon. Now that my uh, my leg is healing up, I'm going to get to some games pretty soon. I don't know if I, I had told you this. I had what my doctor thought was initially a stress fracture in my leg, but I've since discovered is actually just some sort of like superficial damage to a nerve in my lower leg. And as long as I can deal with the pain, I can walk around with it. So uh, I was on crutches for like a week and I was like, there's no way I'm going to games like this. It's hard enough to get around the garden to begin with. But now that I'm walking around a bit more, I'm going to try to get myself to some games soon. Hopefully I'll see you soon. Thanks again for doing this, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me, man. All right. We'll be back Thursday, like I said, with Brad Roland talking some Hawks. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.